Well, it's great to see you guys. Uh, my name is Aaron. If you haven't met you yet, I'm the pastor over here at Redeemer, and uh, and it is just a joy and a privilege to worship with you guys this morning and to be able to uh, have the privilege of bringing the word to you this morning. And today, I want us to just jump right in. Let's go for it. So today, we are going to be in 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3 today. Uh, once you get there, uh, make your way down to verse 13. This morning, we are continuing in our series uh, actually in the last two weeks of our series called On Earth As It Is In Heaven, where we are trying to um, take seriously the Lord's Prayer, where we pray, uh, you know, God's kingdom come, uh, his will be done on earth as it is, as it is in heaven. What if we start to live and, uh, and believe in such a way that that part of the Lord's Prayer could actually be true and something that we see in our lives just in the same way that we pray for our daily bread, that we pray for our sins to be forgiven. Whenever we, we believe those things to be enacted in our, in our lives, that we would also believe that we could see God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven today, in our society, in Lafayette, in Redeemer. And so we've been trying to apply God's will, which is revealed in his word. So trying to apply God's word, his will, to some of the various issues that we face uh, in our lives and in society today. Uh, we have gone through a lot of different topics. We've talked about uh, the, the issues around uh, racial conflicts and the need for uh, racial reconciliation in our society today. We've talked about uh, the issues of, we, we've talked about parenting. We've talked about, uh, last week we talked about uh, the uh, confusions and, and you know, various narratives around uh, gender and sexuality and so on. Today we're going to be diving to another topic today talking about poverty and what is the, uh, as Christians, how should we approach this issue, this topic here. And so we're going to be taking as our guide this morning uh, these words from John, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 13. So if you're there, then you can read along with me. If you don't have your Bible or you're having trouble finding it, that's fine because we'll have the words up on the screens next to me. So you can follow along there. I'll be reading 1 John chapter 3. Uh, 13 through 20. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in, the, in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know we have come. Uh, this is how we know we love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. So here we have these words from John to, uh, to a church that he is writing to in 1 John chapter 3. And we have this topic brought up in this passage here about uh, if you have the world's goods, give them to those who don't. So this issue, this topic of poverty. 
I think when we approach scripture uh, on, the, on this topic, we can do this in a lot of different ways, and not, not just the issue of, of the poor, poverty, and so on. We can do this in a lot of different areas, but I think especially in this area as well. Whenever we approach scripture and we read some of the various passages and what they have to say, we often treat it like a Rorschach test. Do you, know, you guys know what I'm talking about uh, when I'm referring to the Rorschach test? The Rorschach test was developed by uh, was a Swedish artist, I think, this, this Swedish artist, psychoanalyst who would, you know, take these ink blots uh, and then show them to people and say, now what does it look like to you? And then we're supposed to, you know, gain some kind of uh, psychological insight to a person based off of how they interpret these various different shapes and forms of these ink blots. You guys know what I'm talking about, the Rorschach test. And I think that we often come to scripture and we read different passages and what those passages have to say on different topics and treat it in a similar way. In other words, you know, we come to a passage like uh, in Luke chapter 4, in one of the greatest passages in Luke chapter 4, whenever Jesus stands up in the synagogue, this is right after him spending his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness in temptation. He stands up in the synagogue, and he quotes from Isaiah, and he says, you know, I have, I, I have come and arrived to bring the kingdom, to bring, you know, healing to the lame, sight to the blind, and to bring good news to the poor. You know, and we read these wonderful pra- uh, phrases like that in Scripture, and from the mouth of Jesus, uh, you know, good news to the poor. And we often then don't dig deeper into saying, well, what does Jesus mean by good news and the poor? And instead, we often just, like those ink blots say, well, this is what it seems like he's saying to me, right? And we can do that, like I said, with a lot of different topics in Scripture, but especially this one. You know, I think whatever biases we approach this topic with or whatever, um, you know, pre uh, narratives that we had coming into it from politics or from whatever economic views we hold, we come into it and we just apply whatever thoughts and assumptions we already had, right, based off of those other theories to what Jesus is saying or to what John is saying, rather than digging into, well, what, what are they saying? And then let's let what they say and what they meant by their words judge how we view this topic, right? And so I think it's important that we do this. When we ask, good news to the poor, what does that mean in the way that Jesus meant it so that we can understand it? And so my goal today is to try to bring some clarity and also to remove some guilt whenever it comes to this topic. Because I think that very often when we talk about uh, helping the poor or addressing poverty, uh, it's very often driven by, by guilt uh, and, and, and fear maybe even. And so my goal today is to try to add some clarity to these passages that we read, and also to remove some of that guilt. And so we're going to be looking at this passage and three things from what I read here in 1 John 3. The first thing we're going to see is our mission, the mission of the church when it comes to poverty, the mission of the church. Secondly, the sign. There's, there's an important sign that we can uh, interpret here that is very relevant for all of our lives. And then thirdly, the power to do these things. All right. So we're going to talk about the mission, the sign, and the power. Let's begin by talking about the mission. So John is writing here, and he tells them, uh, if anyone has the world's goods, right, what are the world's goods? Possessions, right, capital, uh, finances, whatever are the world's goods. If anyone has the world's goods and he sees a uh, fellow believer in need, then he should uh, help them. He should not withhold compassion because withholding compassion questions whether or not God's love is within him. What John is doing here is he is essentially... Uh, quoting, or, or and it's not a direct quote, but it is a, a very close restatement of something that we saw already in the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, whenever Moses was giving the law, uh, actually giving the second law in Deuteronomy, you know what Deuteronomy means, second law? Uh, he was giving them the law, the law once again. Whenever Moses is giving them the law in Deuteronomy chapter 15, uh, Moses told them, he said, if there is a poor person among you, one of your brothers within any of your city gates in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your, bro- your poor brother. Instead, you are to open your hand to him and freely loan him whatever uh, loan enough freely loan him enough for whatever need he has and so John is uh, not giving something new that has never been seen in scripture before that has never been uh, in the Bible or that was uh, unheard of until this time uh, that we ought to help those in need but he was essentially restating something from Deuteronomy chapter 15 a practice an attribute which was already supposed to be central to the life of being one of God's people just as it was central to being one of God's people as an Israelite to help the poor in the land, so also should it be central to the life of someone following God as a Christian to help the poor who are among us. And that's what John is doing here. He's essentially, he, he's, he's referencing back to, calling their minds to, restating from Deuteronomy 15. But if we can sit in Deuteronomy for just a moment, I think it'll help us to find out the importance and why Okay, why it is that helping the poor is a, it ought to be a core attribute of what it means to be someone who follows God, right? Uh, why is it important? What does it mean for us to be the kind of people who, who help the poor who are among us, right? Because I think that it would be easy for us because helping the poor is a, a common value in our society today, right? Praise God that we live in a society, um, that we live in a time whenever helping the poor is, you know, generally agreed upon as a good thing. You know, most of the time what we're arguing over is how do we help the poor, but but helping those who are in need is generally seen as a good thing, whether you're on the right, left, center, you know, up or down, whatever other sides of the aisle there might be on or whatever. Like, we all agree on that. But the question is, why as Christians? We learn in Deuteronomy chapter 4. So before Moses taught them that in chapter 15, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he's giving them sort of uh, the preamble to the law the establishment of the covenant. And so he once again describes the covenant to the Israelites, telling them, you know, God is committing to be your God and you to be his people. And as, his, uh, and as you being his people, you will live according to his word. And as uh, him being your God, he will bless you according to the terms of this covenant, right? So they enter in this covenant. And here's what uh, Moses says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 4 about following the laws that they are going to receive in the covenant. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, Moses says, Look, I have taught you statutes and ordinances as the Lord my God has commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to possess. Carefully follow them. Listen, for this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples. He's not talking about the Israelites, but the nations around them. When they, once again, the nations, hear about all these statutes, they will say, This is a great nation. Uh, This great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God near to it as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation has righteous statutes and ordinances like this entire law I set before you today? What Moses is saying to them here is that it is important for you to follow all of this law, which coming down the road is going to be the law commanding caring for the poor, right? So that's including what he's saying. 
It is important for you to, to carry out the laws, ordinance, and statutes, not only because they are the terms of the covenant, right? They are how you live in relationship with the Lord your God, but also for this, he says, so the nations will look at how you care for the least among you, how you care for those at the bottom of society, and they will be amazed. They will call you a great nation based off of the way that you follow these the statutes and ordinances. They, and they will see how great our God is based off of that. And so here we learn the first point about our mission. We showed the world the glory of God in our care for the poor. We have an opportunity to show the world the glory of God in our care for the poor. One of the ways, based off of what John is saying here, and based off of what Moses is saying, based off of what all the scriptures say together, one of the ways that we can show the world who God is, is by being a society of justice, is by being a society which helps the least of those among us, right? Whenever you go to help somebody who, um, whenever you go to help somebody who might be able to pay you back, right, is that seen as an incredibly virtuous act, right? Not so much. It's a good thing to do, I guess, but it's not seen as all that incredibly virtuous because you're going to get your money back or you're going to get your uh, possession that you borrowed. You're going to get it back. Maybe even if you, if it's a, an official loan, you might get it back with some interest, right? It's not seen as all that virtuous. If you uh, help somebody with an opportunity uh, who might one day down the road be able, to, be able to give you an opportunity in return, right? Networking. Is that seen as something that is virtuous? Not necessarily. But whenever you help those who cannot help themselves, wherever you help those who might not be able to pay you back and who, in fact, will not pay you back, wherever you help those with, whether it be the world's goods, whether it be through opportunities, uh, uh, you know, and other forms of help, help those who are not going to be able to, down the road, pay you back for it, well, then that is something that the world will look at and see as virtue. And whenever we do these things, because we are doing them as an expression of who we are as, as God's people, then that brings glory to God. You see, the people of Israel were intended to be a nation of priests. You know what that means? A priest is somebody who would be an intermediary, a mediator. A priest was somebody who would stand in between God and the people as a representative of the people to God and as a representative of God to the people, as an intermediary in that relationship. And throughout the Old Testament, there's this calling on the nation of Israel. There's a calling on God's people that they are to be a nation of priests. What does that mean? Well, it means that they are to be like, as, as a collective, as a group of people, that they are supposed to be that nation of priests that, who are like intermediaries standing before, between God and the world, showing to the world the character and the glory of God. One of the ways that they were to fulfill that was in their care for the poor, the stranger, and the alien. And it is the same thing for us as well. Because in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says to the Christians, uh, to, to Christians living scattered abroad in the Roman Empire, in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says to them, But you are a chosen race, just like Israel was chosen, a royal priesthood. You hear that? A holy nation, a people for his possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so 
this central characteristic of the people of Israel carries on into the New Testament as well and carries on to the church. Just as they were called to be a nation of priests, Peter says, we are called to be a royal priesthood, living our lives in such a way that we represent to the world, that we represent to our neighborhoods and to our workplaces, that we represent to Lafayette and Acadiana, the character of our great God so that they might see the way that we love one another, so that they might see the way that we sacrificially care for the least of those among us, so that they may see the way that we give to those who cannot give back and see the glory of our God. You see, church, this is a part of our mission. It is a core part of our mission. We, we, we cannot just say that we are a church that is about the gospel, but then not also help the poor. Right from day one, we said Redeemer is a gospel-centered church. We're all about the gospel. It's at the center of everything we do. It, it is the core message and everything that we, that we communicate. But friends, if we are, are preaching a gospel-centered message, but then not helping the poor, then we're not living a gospel-centered life. This is a core part of our mission. It is not optional. Now, let me just pose this application question, which is, who are the poor? Who are the poor? Because you might notice this when you read scripture, especially this one here in John chapter 3. John specifically says, he says, whenever you see a fellow believer, and whenever you see a brother and sister in need, and you withhold from them the world's goods, then how can we say the love of God resides in you? So if we're going to read this critically, carefully, then what we're going to notice is that John says that you are to help the poor who are among you, the poor uh, who are in the family of faith, right? We see similar things in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. Whenever God is calling his people to care for the poor, he says, whenever you see one of those among you, right, in the family of Israel, one of, one of uh, the, the people uh, in the covenant with God. Also in Matthew chapter 25, we have that very famous passage where it says that uh, one day God is going to bring the nations before him, and he is going to divide them with the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. He's going to say to those on his right, uh, you know, you, you fed me, you clothed me, you visited me with, with me whenever I was in prison, you helped me, right, so on and so on. And so come in and, and, and enjoy your reward. And he says that they will say to him, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or naked and clothe you? And here's what Jesus says. He says, and he will respond to them, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters you have done for me. And so even in this scenario, what he is talking about, because he just said that he split the, the righteous and the wicked. He said, and so in that context, he has split the righteous and the wicked. He said, whatever you have done for one of the least of these, he is talking about the least of these among the righteous. So some might say, okay, so based off of these examples, and there are many, many others, does that mean that we are only to show our compassion and our help and our care to those who are in the church or to those who are part of the family of faith? No. Here's why. Because we also see elsewhere in Scripture, uh, most notably, I'm just going to give you one example, but we also see in Scripture where we, are to, where we are commanded to care for even those who are the poor and even who the, those who are the least of these among the world. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, he says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, but especially for those who belong to the household of faith. 
And I think this verse here perfectly balances and summarizes what is supposed to be our attitude when it comes to helping the poor. We are first and foremost, and in the and the uh, our priority, I guess I should say, we are first and foremost in our priority for helping the poor and for identifying who are the least of these that we are called to care for and love or and help are those who are among the household of faith, right? Those who are some of our brothers and our sisters, fathers and mothers, cousins, right, in the household of God, in the family of Christ. But it, our, our compassion is not called to be limited to there, but that as Paul says, that we are to care for and, and seek the good and the welfare of all, okay? So it's important that we note that. Our priority is on the family of faith, but we should care for all. Not only for the least of these in the church, but for the least of these in the world too. Let me just note a couple of nuances from that. The first one is this. Uh, do, do any of you guys have some family members that, God bless them, and we're not going to name any names, but you, you just don't like that much. Right, and they're hard to kind of get. They're hard to get along with, or they're not the most pleasant to be around. Whatever else it is, they're still your family, right? And so you, you can't just cut them out of your life. You can't just neglect them. Whatever else. I just want to point out that the New Testament, the Old Testament, that Paul, whenever they tell us that our priority is to be on the household of faith, that doesn't make this commandment easier, right? That our priority is to be on helping those who are within the family of Christ and, and helping to meet their needs right before we, we go outside of the family doesn't necessarily make this commandment easier because very often you're going to have to help your family members, your brothers and sisters and cousins in Christ who you just, you guys don't, you always rub each other the wrong way, right? Or there's just, it's hard for you to find common ground with this other person. Or you just, you don't like them that much right? But they're your cousin in Christ. They're your sister, brother in Christ. And so you're called to help them still. So just one nuance based off of the, this, the, this teaching here in scripture that, that doesn't necessarily make this commandment easier, okay? But then also something else. But since that we are called to care for not only those who are within the household, but also those without, outside of the household, not only for those who are in uh, God's nation, for, but for those who are in the world, it is an opportunity for us to even uh, show the world the gospel to an even greater extent because we not only care for our own, but we also care for theirs. You see, the last pagan emperor before, uh, uh, before the Roman Empire legalized Christianity— Note, this is a historical error. Christianity was not made the official religion of the Roman Empire, okay? It was made legal. Those are two very different things. But So before Christianity was made legal in the Roman Empire, the last pagan emperor was a guy named Julian. And Julian was frustrated because by this point, you know, the, the empire's uh, um, measures and, and attempts to stamp out Christianity was just absolutely futile at this point because Christianity was growing in popularity and spreading like crazy. And do you know why? One of the reasons is because they were caring for the poor among them. They were caring not only for those within the church, but those outside of the church. And it was gaining them uh, all kinds of credibility. It was making them attracted to the world around them because of the way that they were living sacrificially like this. And Emperor Julian uh, in a letter to one of the governors of his provinces, was just venting about how they could not stop the gospel, how they could not stop the church. And he wrote this. He says, Do we not observe how the benevolence of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause? It is disgraceful 
that the Christians not only support their poor, but ours as well, while everyone is able to see that our own people lack aid from us. You see, friends, so in this mission that we have as church, we have a great opportunity to spread the gospel, to show the glory of God, and to make um, the mission of God, the people of God, something attractive to the world around us, where we can care for the world's poor even better than, than they do. So that's the mission. What about the sign? Let's talk about the, the sign that this can provide. And this is something that is not so much outward, right? Because we talked about how the, the mission to the world is somewhat like a sign to the world. But I want to talk about a sign that's for us. Here's what I mean by that. In 1 John, you know, every single one of the letters of the New Testament was written to a particular group of people for a t- particular purpose. Scholars call this the occasion. What was the occasion for writing? What were they trying to address? And here in 1 John, the occasion, the reason that John was writing to them is because this church was, was suffering. They were going through some doubt because they were experiencing a lot of people leaving. A lot of people who were once their brothers and sisters, who were once fellow church members with them in their local bodies, and who were worshiping alongside of them, were falling away from the faith. And they were, you know, it, it may not have always been spectacular sins, but it was just, hey, who, who's seen so-and-so in a while? Have you seen that family? I feel like I haven't seen them in a while. It was one of those things where, where people were trickling out, and they were feeling, and they experienced a lot of this. They had seen several people leave from among them, and so it started to cause them all kinds of distress because, well, number one, they were just, they're, they're worried about the health of their church. And number two, they're worried about themselves because they're looking around at these people who were once worshiping alongside of them, who seem to have a faith as just as strong as theirs, who seem to be walking with Christ just as they were. And now they were gone, right? And so it made them reflect on themselves and say, how can I know that that's not going to be me one day? Right? How can I know if they were worshiping right alongside of me, seemingly having the same faith as me, but now they're doing that, how do I know that's not going to be me next week, or next month, next year? Right? So they were going through a lot of distress, wondering, how can we know that we know Christ? And so this is what John was writing to them about. How do we know that we know him? And John gives them three answers. I'm going to tell you the three in this second point and then work through them. So the second major point these three answers from John, is that the signs of our relationship with Jesus are truth, obedience, and love. These were John's answers to them. I'm going to walk you through each, through, through each one of them. The signs, that we know, the signs of our relationship with Jesus are truth, obedience, and love. So John gives them three tests to know whether or not they're walking with Christ. Okay? I'm going to walk you through all three, even though only the third one is really uh, relevant to this topic, but I think it's important you know all three. The first test is the truth test. John gives them the truth test. It's the first one he writes about in, in, the, in his letter to them. The truth test is this, is that you have to know Jesus as he is revealed in the scripture. You can know that you know Jesus whenever you know Jesus as he is revealed in the scripture. In other words, that means knowing Jesus and accepting him, uh, believing in him, placing your faith in him, uh, in the person that he says he is. Whenever Jesus says who he is, then you take that and you believe in it. So namely what that means, most importantly what that means, is knowing Jesus as your Savior and as your King. 
right? Believing and taking Christ in his word, at his word, that he is the son of man who came to pay uh, a ransom for the world's uh, sin debt. And that in him paying that ransom, he has done away with our guilt before God. He has done away with the debt that we owed for our sin and that salvation is now offered in him. We have to take Jesus at his word about who he says that he is. This is so important because oftentimes, whether we do this consciously or subconsciously, right? Whether we do this knowingly or we just kind of drift into it, we often start to try to build a relationship with a Jesus of our own making. The way this works out is to look at Jesus and say, I don't like these aspects of Jesus, right? I like the, I like the very loving part and, and, and the loving side of him, but the, but the truth inside in of him, the judging side of him that says that, you know, he's one day going to judge the world in righteousness. I, I don't know so much about that. I don't like that part of him. Or I like whenever Jesus calls us to personal holiness and, and character and virtue and following him, but whenever he calls us to uh, give up our goods to, to the poor, right? I don't like that side of him so much, right? We can come to Jesus and, and try to Try to ignore various different aspects of who he is or what he taught us, right? You, you can come to Jesus and say, you know, I like to think of him more as just a good teacher, right? But can you have a relationship with Jesus if you come to him and say, I know that this is who you said you are, but this is who I like to think of you as? Because that's essentially what we're doing. Like I said, whether you're doing it consciously or whether you've just drifted into that, coming to Jesus and say, I know you said this about yourself and and, and this about life, but these are, these are the things that I actually want to think about you. Can you have a relationship with him based on that foundation? Think of it this way. Consider somebody comes up to you and they say, you know what, I, I really like to think of you as a terrible parent. I, I really like to think of you, maybe a lot of you guys aren't parents, so I really like to think of you as, as a terrible friend. And now you might respond like, so me as a parent, you know, I might respond, well, you know, uh, I give it my best. Uh, I try to discipline my children. You know, uh, people sometimes often think that maybe I'm a, I'm a little too strict, right? Because I, I sell boundaries and I hold them to it, but I'm just doing my best. But the person says to me, you know, but I like to think of you as a terrible parent, you know? I like to think of you as just, you, you let your kids run wild and do whatever they want and their constant chaos and, and a headache on everybody. If somebody's saying to the, this to you about being a friend, you know, I like to think of you as just a really backstabbing friend. You know, somebody that no one can really count on but that's not true of you at all, then you might respond in, in such a way saying, well, you can think that. It's a free country. You're allowed to think that, but our relationship is over, <laughs> right? Because you can't have a relationship with somebody based on with, with them believing something about you that is not truth at all. And the same thing is true with Christ. If we want to have a relationship with him, then we have to know him as he is revealed in the scripture, we have to know him and accept him based upon the things that he says about himself and that scripture says about him. So that's the truth test. The second is the obedience test. You know Christ if you obey his commandments. You can know that you know Jesus, right? Because these things, what we're talking about is assurance, knowing that we know him, knowing the relationship. So you can know him if you know him with truth. You know that you know him if you obey him. We can't really say that you're in a relationship with somebody if you're constantly, or that you really know somebody, right? Because if you really know somebody, then you know the things that they disapprove of. You know the things that they are displeased by. You know the things that um, 
You know all their pet peeves, maybe, right? You know the things to avoid and the things to celebrate and how to act around them and the things that hurt them and so on, right? Whenever you really know somebody, you know those things. And so if you know those things and you are constantly going against them, you're celebrating what they disprove and you're doing what displeases them and you're, you're stepping on every single one of their pet peeves and doing all these things, uh, you're, you're committing things that hurt them, right? They can really claim to know them or to have a relationship with them if you go doing all those things? No, of course not. And the same thing is true for us if we are Christians following Christ. We cannot say that we know him and we cannot say that we are following him and that we truly have a relationship with him if we go around doing all the things that displease him. If we constantly go around affirming or accepting or doing what he disapproves of, We cannot say that we have a relationship with Christ and know him if we are always doing things that grieve him, right? Now, look, it's possible to be a Christian and to disobey. That's possible because your salvation is not contingent, is not based upon your performance, right? And so even though we're Christians, we're still dealing with sin, and there's grace for us in that. But friends, As a Christian, if you continue on in sin, if you refuse to repent, or if you if you just if you just push off repentance, like like try to sometimes I think we try to shove off that that knowledge that we need to confess and repent out of our minds and just keep going on our way, maybe relying on some kind of cheap grace. If you continue living on in that in such a way, then you are putting off your ability to have that assurance that we're talking about assurance, the, the, the knowing that you know, having that confidence that you know Christ, that he knows you, that you are in relationship with him, that you are a child of God saved by his grace and being transformed by his spirit, right? Being made new day by day, like that, that there is a crown of glory waiting for you in heaven, right? That you are, uh, that you are looking forward to that weight of glory one day. The confidence and the assurance in knowing all these things, if you continue on in sin, then you're just putting off the assurances waiting for you. So that's the obedience test. John says to them that they need to know Christ, right? But then he says, but if you continue to walk in darkness while he is in the light, then how can you claim to know him? Walk in the light as he is in the light and not in darkness, right? Live in obedience to him who is not only our savior and redeemer, but who is also our king. And then when you start to obey him, you'll see the assurance will come with it because that's one of his blessings of obedience. The third one is this, the truth test, the love, the, the, sorry, the truth test, obedience test, and then the love test. You know that you know Jesus if you love with sacrificial action. John wrote to them, he said, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Now, once again, if we treat scripture like a Rorschach test, if we approach it and we just apply to it all the different things that we think, then we're really watering down what John is saying here because we think, okay, well, if I just, if I have this nice warm feeling towards my brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, if I, if I show up at church on Sunday morning and I'm, and I'm filling up my coffee and I'm smiling at everybody else and, and I'm happy to see them and our, and our you know, kids are being crazy and, and we're joking around, and like, then, oh, you know, I'm loving the brothers and sisters. Well, then that must mean that, that I'm, I'm passing this test and I'm doing great, right? But that is not what John means by love here. What John means by love is a sacrificial action, right? Uh, it, it, it is 
active. It means doing something. It means doing something sacrificially because John defined it for us. John defines love for us in this way. He says, this is how we come to know love. He laid down his life for us. You see, in the Christian church, when it comes to loving one another as brothers and sisters, when it comes to helping the least of these among us, what is our standard for love? It is the cross of Christ. That's a high standard. Jesus laying down his life. Jesus sacrificing everything on the cross so that, might, so that we might receive the blessing of his actions, right? That is our standard of love. And so if, our, if what we are calling love is just warm feelings and laughing and small talk at church, but not sacrificial love and action towards one another, then the love of Christ is not in us. John says, this is how we know love. He laid down his life. Are you laying down your life? Are you willing to live in a sacrificial way so that you might help our brothers and sisters who are in need? And Redeemer, I just want to say that I think that you guys are doing great in this. I want to encourage you in this for a moment because last year was a hard year for for everybody, right? With the COVID pandemic, the shutdowns, people losing, losing jobs, losing incomes, facing various trials, being sick, family members being sick, losing family. It was a crazy year for us. But over here at Redeemer, even in our small church, right, we're just a little group of people. And even in our young church, we're not just small, but we're young, right? You know, a lot of you guys, you know, you're, you're not really going to, we're not going to make it onto any, uh, you know, church, uh, church growth magazines for our giving. Okay. Uh, let me just put it that way. But despite all that, our church gave over $13,000 away last year to organizations helping the need outside of us, helping children of foster care and adoption, helping missions organization, feeding international students to UL, uh, various different uh, missions agencies and missionaries. You guys gave over $13,000 away last year. And our small church with our young congregation, some of you guys only make $13,000 a year. (laughs) Right? Praise God for that. And praise God for your witness and for what you're doing. And so I just want to encourage you guys and brag on you guys a little bit here and say thank you for loving sacrificially. Let's continue to love sacrificially, and let's make last year look like just the small start to something, right? Something that we can just grow into and continue pressing into. As a church, as individual church members, brothers and sisters, but also collectively as a body, let us continue pressing into radical generosity that is only possible through sacrificial giving through sacrificial living. Because you know what? To love in a way, to love in a way that shows people the love of Christ, that requires a sacrificial life. If we're going to show the world, if we're going to display to the world the love of Christ and the way that we care for the least of these in our church and those outside of our church, it means that you're going to have to live in a way that other people who are making the same annual income as you, uh, you're not going to be able to live up to their standards, Right? Two people that make 60000 a year, one in the church, they're going to have to live according to lower living standards because they're living sacrificially so they can show the glory of God with their worldly goods. That's the kind of life that I'm calling us to as a church, Redeemer. Let's see if we can do it. Because here's what I want us to see. 
which is that we are called to sacrificial living. Let me just for a moment show, try to press into here the vast difference between the Christian answer to helping in addressing poverty and the world's answer. The world's answers are always going to be someone else living sacrificially, someone else sacrificing to help so-and-so and whoever, right? On the secular right, it's always the poor. Those who are poor are poor because of their individual choices, right? Because they aren't being wise with their, their, their finances or they're, they're making all these different decisions in their life. And so they need to start sacrificing so they can take advantage of, of all the opportunities that there are in America for them and pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. The secular rights answer to poverty is not us living sacrificially to help and enable them right, to take advantage of the opportunities, but that they need to live sacrificially. Likewise, on the left... On the left in our country today, it is all about uh, taking sacrificially from others to give it to those who are poor, right? Many of us, and and I'm I'm sure that many people today, would not go and steal from their richer neighbor so they could give to the poor, but we don't see a problem with voting for a politician who will steal from our neighbor to give it to someone who is poor. The answers of our world today are always, let's make someone else sacrifice. But the call of Scripture... And the call of Christ is that we will sacrifice to help our brother and sister in need. But where will we find the power to do that? Is it possible that the church can, can live in such a way that despite all the various answers of the world that are out there, and despite all the various programs of the world that are out there, can, can we live in such a way, can we see the church actually step up so that people in America would say, you know what, they're taking care of the poor even better than we are. Is it possible? Where can we get the power? I'll tell you where we can get the power. There's a bad motivation that won't work, and there's a good motivation. The motivation that won't work is guilt. You see, this is also something else that the world's answers always depend upon. The world's answers, whether they come from the right, left, center, up and down, Uh, whatever else it is, the world's motivations always are based upon guilt, saying that, well, you know, look at how much more you have than this other person. Don't you think that you should give to them, right? Or look how much more all those people have than someone else. Don't you think that they should sacrifice? Guilt is a motivation that will not work. Guilt might work temporarily. It might work initially. It might be really effective at first. If you're motivated by by guilt, and so you try to start, you know, volunteering here or there or serving in the church more or tithing a little extra, it might be effective for a little while, but it's not going to be sustainable. Here's why. Because whenever you try to, to serve and to love out of guilt, essentially what you're doing is this. You're trying to love enough in order to prove that you are lovable. You're trying to love enough in order to prove that you are worthy of receiving love And friends, that is a hole, a vacuum that you'll never be able to fill. Guilt by motivation never works. One of the all-time best episodes of The Office was the Dunder Mifflin Fun Run. You remember Michael Scott's Dunder Mifflin Fun Run, Race for the Cure, whatever it was, the the super long title that they had where they were going to solve AIDS and rabies and and everything else underneath the sun, right? And, And Michael is just... He is, uh, he is so driven 
to make this thing happen, to make this, this fun run. They're going to do a you know, blowout success to raise money. They're going to solve rabies and, and, and whatever else it is. They're going to address all these different issues. And so Michael is just so passionate. He's doing all these different things, and he's going through the race, just giving it his all, and he gets down to the end of it, and he just collapses, right? And, and Jim and Pam come up to him, and they're talking to him, trying to encourage him. And, you know, he says, I just can't do enough. I just, I just can't do enough. The, the, world, the problems of the world are just too big. I can't address them all. What was his problem, right? Michael's problem was trying to prove himself as someone lovable by trying to solve the world's needs. He was being driven by guilt, and that guilt was able to make him go hard for a little while, right? But not the whole way. And guilt will always work the same way in all of our lives. It is the motivation that will not work. You'll never feel like you can do enough. But on the other hand, love is the motivation that will work. A love that we do not conjure up in ourselves, but a love that has been proven to us and then poured into our hearts. Here's how John opens up chapter 3. John is talking to them once again about, how, about knowing that we are God's children. And in John, 1 John 3 verse 1, he says, See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. All up until this point in John's letter, Scott, Greek scholars tell us that he's writing in very uh, proper, very ordered, well-written grammar until chapter 3, verse 1. All of a sudden, the grammar goes out the window. His writing gets sloppy. It's almost as though he has this outburst of emotion in this moment, right? Words that should be in different places or all over the place. Um, Where if he says, see, it's, it's him saying, behold. It's him saying, look. He's calling their attention to to God's great love. He said, God's love has been poured out for us to make us his children. And he just says, and we are, <laughs> we are his children. John is overwhelmed with the love of God, proven, displayed for us in the cross. And the love of God uh, proven for us in making us his children. And it's that love that then leads him down as he goes throughout the chapter to saying, this is how we'll love one another. The only love that is powerful enough for us to be able to give the world's goods and to help the needs and meet the poor where they are and so on is the love that comes from God, the love that God had to make rebels his children. You see, we are God's children because the Son of God sacrificed himself for us. We are rich in God's favor because Jesus became poor for us. Friends, it will only be it will only be possible to for you to live in such a sacrificial way if you have a deep experience of the love of Christ. The deeper your experience of the love of Christ, the deeper your experience of seeing how Jesus, who as God's Son came down and experienced the wrath of God poured out on on, 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 on sinners, on rebels, so that us rebels could be made his sons, so that Jesus, who was rich in God's favor, became poor on our behalf, so that we who are poor could become rich in God's favor. It is only by having a deep experience of that sacrificial love that, then, that you will then be enabled, that you will then be given the power to sacrifice for others, to sacrifice for others to such a degree that it makes the world look and say, what a great nation with a great God. And so the last thing, the last application I want to give you is this, is that we don't love the poor 
out of guilt or out of utopian visions, but we love in order to serve with the love of Christ. Remember this, when the world would guilt you into serving the poor, whenever the world tries to divide society between, between lines of class or economic income or, or neighborhood or whatever else it might be, and say that, you know, depending on which side of the line that you're on, you're in the guilty party. Depending on which side of the line you're on econ- economically, you're bad. And so in order to prove that you're not bad, you need to make sure that you're helping these people. You see, that's solutions based on guilt. But remember what Jesus said to those righteous sheep on his right hand. He said he's, he's going to put the righteous on his right hand. He's going to say, wherever you gave the hungry food, wherever you gave the thirsty drink, wherever you visited those in prisons, and wherever you gave the naked clothing, you did so as, as though you were doing it to me. And for that, you will receive a reward. You see the vast difference there. Not based upon guilt but based upon the love of Christ that we have received, we love. Not based upon a, a class struggle and warfare and proving your atonement by, by dissociation from a certain group, but instead not loving the poor because of what class they belong in or, or what we identify them as, but loving them because we love them as if we are loving Christ in return for what he has done for us. That's what Jesus meant when he said, you have loved the least of these as though you were loving me. There are churches who sometimes only serve in truth. They preach the truth. They share the gospel. There's other churches who aren't so sure about the truth, and so they only serve in deed and and through social action. If we're going to be a truly gospel-centered church, then we cannot only love in deed, but we cannot only love in truth, but we must serve and love in both word and deed. Learning that deed ministry, helping the poor, the elderly, the ill, whatever else, is a sign that we belong to Jesus, and it is a sign to the world, and it is an enacting of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, the power to be able to live in such a sacrificial way and to live with such a, a wisdom that whenever it manifests itself, in our life, it produces a, a, a sign to the world of uh, the greatness of your gospel, the riches of your mercy, and the uh, infiniteness of your grace, Lord, the power to accomplish something in this way, that we, might, that we might hear the emperors of our day say, look at how they care for our poor even better than we do. Lord, the power to accomplish something like this cannot come from ourselves. Lord, it cannot come from our own wisdom. It cannot come from a, a, a loving feeling that we try to conjure up in ourselves. Lord, it cannot come about through our programs, but it only comes about whenever your love is poured into our hearts. As a temple, we are filled with your Holy Spirit and that your Spirit brings transformation. So, Father, would you transform us to live lives which are just and which are sacrificially loving? Would you give us the eyes to see where there are opportunities and give us uh, and, and lead us into taking those opportunities? Let us be discerning, Lord, as you're discerning so that we would know who are the poor that we must prioritize, that we must help. Those who are among us, but then also those who are outside of us. 
lead us into those opportunities and then give us the strength and the power that we'll need to show your glory to Lafayette and Acadia and around us. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen.